Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's about the Bills and the beer. Now, here's your host, John Murphy. Hello there and welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. This is our 10th podcast. We're happy to have you with us here today. Got a lot to talk about with a couple of great guests today, including, in a moment or two, Mike Tarico of NBC Sports. You know him from Sunday Night Football, the host of NBC Sunday Night Football, the host of their golf coverage, the host of their Stanley Cup coverage, does just about everything for NBC. Maybe going to do the Bill Steelers game in mid-December, a couple of weeks away. We hope that's the case. Mike Tarico, who I've known for many years, going to join us momentarily on the uh, podcast to talk about NFL football, to talk about the How's the NFL handling the COVID crisis? Talk about the scene at Notre Dame Stadium last Saturday night. We'll get Mike Tarico's thoughts on that in just a moment. Looking forward to that. Also on the podcast today, Mark Fox from New York City. He is the man behind the Fox Lifestyle Group, the Fox uh, Hospitality Lifestyle Hospitality Group in New York City. Has about five restaurants. All struggling, he says, because of the COVID shutdowns. We'll talk with him about that. Michael Mead, the CEO of Sullivan's Brewing Company, will join us for that segment. That's coming up in segment three on the podcast today. So a couple of interesting guests, a lot to talk about. And we'll start by talking about Sullivan's Brewing Company, the sponsors of our podcast. Sullivan's Brewing in Kilkenny, Ireland, brewed in Ireland. Three major products, Sullivan's uh, Maltings Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Gold Ale, and Sullivan's Black Marble Stout, available in bars and restaurants throughout upstate New York and many other markets. Speaking of upstate New York, we're going to be there with Sullivan's this Thursday night at Killebrew Saloon, 10 Clinton Road in New Hartford, New York, just outside Utica. Our man Matt Tomeno, who represents Sullivan's in that area, has an event planned for us, 7 o'clock Thursday night. The Colts and Titans are playing on Thursday night football, and we'll be there this Thursday night, November 12th to represent Sullivan's and to talk about the Buffalo Bills and their 7-2 and two start. More on that coming up later in the podcast. Hope you can join us at Killebrew Saloon in New Hartford, New York, coming up this Thursday night. And we'll talk a lot about the Bills on Thursday night. I know there are Bills fans down there, and they are dying to talk about their team. The Bills at 7-2, and two, first place in the AFC East, coming off what may be the most impressive win of Sean McDermott's tenure. I think it was the 44-34 win over Seattle last Sunday. I think um, for Josh Allen in particular, I think it was his best game ever in the NFL. And not necessarily because of his stats. Yeah, he had 400 or more yards, um, but he was flawless. He was flawless in his decision-making, did not turn it over, his leadership on display. Look, he was handed a game plan that asked a lot from him. And he executed it. He did it while dealing with his personal hardships. You know the story. His grandmother passed away, just found out about it the day before the game, decided to play, and played very well. A 69% completion rate after nine games. Ten points higher than last year. I thought he'd get better. Did I think he'd get ten points better than last year? No. A 16% higher than his rookie year just two years ago. His improvement is dramatic. His improvement is tangible. And I got to say, I think his improvement is a demonstration of the work that he does in the offseason. And he does every offseason. He's made dramatic improvement every year. And I think he, we should take our hats off to that, how much work he does in the offseason with Jordan Palmer out west. It's ridiculous. I know people still ask and people who observe this team from afar say, well, Josh can take this game and prove that he's the franchise quarterback. Look, he's been the franchise quarterback for almost two years now, I think. Uh, he, he's been outstanding. If he's not a franchise quarterback in the NFL, I don't know what a franchise quarterback is. That's how good Josh Allen is playing right now, and he played great this past Sunday against Seattle. Uh, he had eight different uh, guys receiving passes. 
Deep passes, short passes, all of it very diverse. But I want to talk for a minute about the aggressive approach the Bills had in this game. And it started right from the opening kickoff, even on special teams, aggressive. Andre Roberts, five, six yards deep in the end zone, brings it out, the opening kickoff, and goes upfield 60 yards. Brings it out of the end zone, goes 60 yards downfield, and sets up a 45-yard drive for the first Buffalo score. That was an incredible play. And I don't think it's overlooked, but it, it bears mentioning again, that shows the mindset the Bills had going into this game, how aggressive they were going into this game against Seattle. The Seahawks blitzed too much, yes, and the Bills' offense made them pay. But on offense, the Bills were attacking all day long. You know, when the game began, eight straight passes to start. At the end of the first half, they were still on the attack. They tried a 61-yard field goal. Even when they were up in the fourth quarter by 10 points, 14 points, they were still on the attack. They were still very aggressive. You know, going into the game, some thought they might focus on the run. They ran for 190 yards the week before against New England. Some thought the Bills might want to burn some clock, limit the high-powered Seahawks offense, get, reduce their time on the field. And the Bills said, no way. They threw it. They were aggressive. It was amazing. It was a bold move by uh, Brian Dable, Sean McDermott, by the entire coaching staff. Once thought to be too conservative, they demonstrated the trust they have in their players and the trust they have in their concepts, and they went out and played aggressively and got a huge win. The defense was good, too. Aggressive. Again, heavy blitzing. They attacked Russell Wilson all day. Even after they gave up big plays, they stayed in attack mode. Wound up with five sacks and four turnovers, the result of some of their attacking. And look, this is kind of a, a sea change from the way they played defense a year ago, a year, uh, two, year or two ago. They were more conservative. Leslie Frazier not dialing up too many blitzes. Lately, I think we're seeing an involvement of the Buffalo defense. They're starting to attack more, starting to blitz more, starting to put pressure on opposing quarterbacks. And let's face it, the defense has not been stellar all season long, but maybe they found the key to get this defense better. Um, it was the Bills' best win of the year by far. The best win in three and a half years of McDermott's tenure. I don't know about statement wins. I don't know what it means to get a statement when you only play 16 games this one only counts as one win i think the bill's biggest obstacle ahead is going to be injury matt milano mitch morse cody ford josh norman all question marks these are important players they have to get them healthy now the bye week's coming up that will help they got to play arizona first this week who just lost to miami by three the bye week will help but they really do have to get injured and come up with some answers for some of these injured players arizona cardinals on sunday at four um they uh they're really good five and three number one offense in the NFL led by uh, led by the second year uh, quarterback um, Kyler Murray he is sensational he's got weapons yeah but he is a dual threat he leads that team in rushing he averages seven yards per carry it's a unique threat for the Bills defense it's uh it's almost like playing Josh Allen right as much as he runs it as effectively as he runs it and he's got great weapons DeAndre Hopkins and Larry Fitzgerald as well it's a long trip out west for the Bills that's a bit of a factor the Bills have to avoid looking ahead to the bye week into the second half of the season that's a bit of a factor the division title they're on track to win the division title the AFC East but now they have to keep stacking up wins and start to think about ensuring home field in the playoffs it's an exciting time for the Bills and especially exciting for their fans there's no question about that we're going to talk more about the Bills with Mike Tirico coming up in just a moment, so stick around for that. It's Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with Mike Tirico of NBC Sports, the host of Sunday Night Football, does play-by-play -play on Notre Dame on NBC, 25 years at ESPN before that, 10 of them play-by-play -play on Monday Night Football. He does play-by-play -play on a handful of games on Sunday Night Football as well, the lead host of NBC's golf coverage. He hosts the Olympics on NBC, Stanley Cup coverage, the Indy 500, 
like your resume is so expansive and so impressive, it's impossible to summarize it. Oh, it's just just kind of show up on TV every once in a while, Murph. Good to be with you. Great to great to connect. Oh, I hope things are well with all our, our friends in Western New York. Yeah, things are good. The Bills are doing well. I want to talk yeah. about a variety of things, though, uh, and and in particular the the impact of COVID. It, it's weird that so many things are shut down and postponed, and yet when you look at your schedule, you're probably as busy as you've ever been these days, huh? Well, it was interesting, John, because when everything hit and we shut down uh, from a sports standpoint through most of the spring and the early part of the summer, we created a talk show on NBCSN. So that had us busy right away as soon as the uh, pandemic started. And then we had the delay and then eventual postponement of the Olympics. So that kept us busy as we were doing shows for that. And then things started to come back and all those events that were a part of in the spring, the Triple Crown horse races, the Indy 500, some NASCAR stuff all happened in the late summer, and then that bled right into football. So it's been one continuous run. It's certainly been different. I, you know, I, I've been telling folks, as we have been lucky enough to get out to do events, it's uh, twice as difficult, I think, for everybody to do any job at this point. And on the sports covering TV or radio events, uh, it's similar to that. Uh, but, but I will say that I think this has been, in our industry, one of the best moments all the way around. All the men and women who walk, work behind the scenes, the technicians, who you know, the IT people have obviously become heroes in many companies. But it's really true in TV. How the program gets to your TV has changed significantly because of COVID. And when you watch the games, you don't really notice it all that much. And that's a, a full credit to these amazing, talented people behind the scenes who've helped give us a chance to still do our jobs and as fans to still enjoy games like we have been most every fall for the last 30, 40 years. Right. But speaking of enjoying games, you had an amazing game Saturday night. You were there at Notre Dame, yeah. right, for that game? Yes, we, we were. We've been, we've been in South Bend for all the games to call the games. Our producer and director aren't there and most of our production group, but uh, obviously the cameramen, some of the engineers and uh, the announcers have been on site for those games. Yeah, it was what something. What did you make of the post-game scene and those yeah. thousands of Notre Dame fans, most of them students on the field? It was sort of alarming to most people, huh? It was. It was the last thing that I expected to see at, at that point. I think just the way the game built up and kept going and going. And, um, you know, if, if there's anything that is hopefully encouraging as the students will over the next week or so go through their testing is that most of those students are tested during the week anyway. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully, you know, uh, there, and you have to show that you, you've had that test recently that week before you get your student ticket. So hopefully, there wasn't a, a lot of asymptomatic COVID-19 present amongst the folks that were there. But uh, needless to say, those are the types of events that you look at, uh, even the folks who were celebrating uh, the result of the election or protesting the result of the election or things in the buildup for that. Those are the type of events that uh, we fear. And, and some folks say is the reason we have a spike again here as we head into the winter. So it's obviously concerning. And, you know, in our, in our job, you're supposed to document things and I think if we would have been on a little bit longer, we probably would have made more conversation about it and, and deal with it. But that was one of those, as you well know, Murph, it's the news and Saturday Night Live are waiting. You got to get off the air here. We didn't even do an interview after the game. We got off the air so quick. So it was one of those uh, bizarre, bizarre scenes to see. People talk about that and remember it. it. It was a memorable night, to say the least. You don't get number one going to Notre Dame very often, let alone Notre Dame beating them. So it was, uh, it was quite a night. Unfortunate that that was the last scene that people saw from there, for sure. I have a question for you about Notre Dame uh, broadcasting mm -hmm. your games in general, Mike. Yeah. And like, uh, like me, you're a Syracuse University product. Um, 
I don't. It's tough to admit uh, sometimes. I think for me, but uh, Notre Dame is different than Syracuse. It's something a little special about that. I get in trouble with Notre Dame fans locally because I don't ever admit it publicly. But seriously, they're a little bit different in Notre Dame, right? It's something special there. It, it's it's really special. And I'll be honest. Uh, you know, I was uh, probably in that group, and even as I covered sports nationally, didn't understand the connection and the passion. But once you're there, you do because so much of the history is in that place. I mean, 91 years they've been playing football there. And because Notre Dame plays a national schedule, the best players from all around the country have played in that stadium or have a tie to the history of Notre Dame football. And obviously you go through Rockney and all the championships before the war era, uh, on through the 70s with Parsegian and then Lou Holtz after that. Uh, so you understand that. And then, John, I, I think what's different about the, the allure of Notre Dame is one of the two Catholic universities that play college football along with Boston College. But secondly, and maybe most significantly, because of Notre Dame replay being on in all the big cities, in New York, in Chicago, and Boston, and you go across the country, uh, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, on Sunday mornings with Lindsey Nelson, longtime announcer, uh, doing that, Notre Dame really had this national profile back then. So if you didn't have a local team, and in many of those big metropolitan cities, you didn't have a local team, Notre Dame became your team. Or if you were the Catholic faith, Notre Dame became your team. And it passed off from generation to generation. So that's why you get people all over who are big Notre Dame fans. I know uh, a guy who we both know, Ed Rutkowski, uh, who's uh, the father-in-law of my great pal, Paul Peck, my college roommate. Uh, you know, I've, I've talked to him in the past as a, a Notre Dame alum as uh, he is so connected to the school. What you see with people like Ed and his wife, Mary Lou, and all the folks who were Notre Dame uh, around it, they have such a passion for it that they share it with the people around them, and they don't let go. And I think it is uh, different for those of us in upstate New York because it's a national feel to it. It's a connection to the history of college football. And I will say, John, that after now five years of doing these games, I totally get it. It does feel special and different. And I was excited to see Dabo Sweeney, uh, you know, uh, Hall of Famer because two national championships and all his success. He got to campus for the first time last week and he wanted to take it all in. He went down to the grotto to light a candle. He wanted to see Touchdown Jesus and the Rockby statue and all this. And uh, here's a guy who's you know, got it all in college football right now. But for him, he wanted to see it and feel it. So if you uh, appreciate or have affinity for the history of college football, Notre Dame is a part of it. And to be able to live it up close the last five years has been a treat for us, for sure. Another question about another role of yours, the host of uh, NBC's Sunday Night Football, the host, not the, obviously the game itself. Mm -hmm. It strikes me, and I was thinking about the last few weeks, when I come home from a Bills game, and now we do all the games in Orchard Park, I right. look forward to that show. It's sort of, I think the NFL world catches their breath. Uh, in the pregame show, it's, and it's a pregame show. You're doing a preview of Sunday night's game. You also show highlights, talk about league trends. It's an opportunity, one of the rare opportunities in this diversified media landscape for everybody to kind of collect and say, okay, what happened today, right? Is that what you're looking to do there? And get ready for the night game. Yeah, you know, way before me when uh, Bob Costas was hosting the show and Dan Patrick was on it, uh, our executive producer now at NBC, Sam Flood, was producing the show. And uh, they like to look at the show as, hey, it's the show of record. If it happened on Sunday uh, during the 1 to 7 o'clock window, which is now expanded out to about 7.30, you know, we'll, we'll document it and try to put it in perspective as well. And I think what's evolved over the last few years is, you know, a lot of folks, whether it's the Red Zone channel, um, the networks are much more aggressive during competition 
in doing cutaways to the New York or the Los Angeles studio. I mean, you, you hear updates from James Brown on the CBS games or Carissa Thompson on the Fox games a lot more than we used to 10, 15 years ago. So by and large, if there's been a big play in the league, you've seen the highlight. So we try to use uh, Tony Dungy and Rodney Harrison and Chris Sims for perspective on it. Mike Florio is talking to players in the locker room right after the game or coaches on the bus heading back to the airport. Uh, so we just try to do as much of that as we can, plus go back and forth and preview the Sunday night game as well. So it's, it's a little bit of everything. I will say, and I've been blessed to do a bunch of things in the business, and you know what it's like to call a game and do it play-by-play, and there are 100 things going on. That stretch from 7.15 to 8.15 is, is by far the most challenging of my week because you've got your analysts, you've got game highlights from the early games, but now you're watching the late games finish as well as keep the conversation going. So uh, I, I can give you one from last week. We were in the middle of doing a highlight of one of the early games, and I'm keeping an eye on the last play of the Chargers Raiders as it's happening. You know, so you're kind of in the middle of a highlight. You throw it to Tony, who's analyzing a play there, and now I'm watching the Chargers guy, and I think he caught it for a touchdown. And then we come back, we finish our highlight, and now I'm looking off to the other side, and I see – that it's under review and then you look peak later and it's incomplete but then you know that that audience is now switching over to you because their late game is done so you want to be able to catch them and welcome them in so you welcome a new audience in uh so it's a it's a fun hour it, it requires full concentration and full focus and it's it's a blast I, i'd love to be uh the opportunity to be a part of that show the last uh, three or four years in the studio it's been great Mike, you're going to do some Sunday night play-by-play. Uh, -play. You have done some. What do you got? About a half dozen games on your on your calendar this year? Yeah, it, it, it'll t it'll total up to that for the year. You know, depending on what happens here in the next few weeks, I'm, I'm hoping to be up that way uh, in December at the December 13th. Steelers I was visit. going to ask you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As of now, I think that's one that's that we're planning. Obviously, schedules can all flip flop and change, but I'm hoping that I get a chance to do that game. That'll be a uh, That'd be a, f a fun game, and uh, you know Orchard Park in mid-December, and the Steelers. It just feels like feels like an important game down the road. So I'm hoping yeah. that works out that way. Could be important. I want to ask you. I want to talk about the Bills a little bit, but yeah. I want to talk about the NFL versus COVID. Um, is the mm. league making it, or do you think uh, the worst is yet to come? There's more to come. We're up, we're past well, I mean, the midway point of the season right now. Yeah, we're playing into mid-November, and I don't know if everybody would have signed up that that would be happening at the start of the season, right? I mean, it's been an extraordinary uh, opportunity for the league's uh, infrastructure to show how good they are and how much they do, whether it's the testing that they're able to do. Uh, the teams, as you, you see it there in Buffalo, what, what the teams have had to do at every level, uh, tier one, tier two, just to try to make it work, how – as you said, the radio announcers not going on the road to do games, but setups in the stadium in your in your radio booth. I mean, there have been just so many different parts of this that have had to come together. And the sacrifice from a lot of the players to limit their social life, limit the interactions that their families are having. Because um, obviously, you know, you have families, the veteran players, and their kids are in school or in the community or uh, all the people who are around them. And uh, for the most part, the league has done a remarkable job in just being able to continue to play. But obviously, as we see, the numbers are rising in all communities in all states around the country. I think 43 of the 50 states as of uh, this week saw an uptick, a significant uptick in cases. So it's going to be more of a challenge. And I think it's what we've seen last week, John, uh, more in, the, in these communities around the NFL, and we've had more situations to deal with. But the league has been 
as transparent as I've ever seen them on any issue. You know, they do a call almost every Sunday with every one of the networks. You're up to date on what's going on. You can ask questions, chief medical officer, chief information folks in the league, uh, the, the folks who are in football operations. So they're really trying to do the best they can to keep everyone informed about what's going on and keep the season going as best they can. And so far, I think they've done a remarkable job. But having said that, I think these next six, seven weeks are going to be a challenge if the numbers continue to go up across the country, as all the scientists say they will. Mike, uh, I'd be interested in your midseason thoughts about the Buffalo Bills, seven and two, first place in the division. What do you think? Are they for real? Yeah, I mean, I was I was all in after uh, after the win over Las Vegas. Okay, here we go, four and zero. This thing this thing's going great guns, right? Josh looks terrific, and um, the defense hasn't been as good. You play two teams, you play you know, that weird Tennessee game as you're preparing for two games. You know, you you were going to play Kansas City on Thursday, but you play Tennessee two days later, and all that stuff. So everything felt like it just got a little out of order and out of sorts, and you know. Murph, I think it's important to remember that, you know, that, that left shoulder injury for Josh really could have been more of a factor in that little dip in his play. I mean, you, you talk to quarterbacks. I heard uh, Matt Hasselbeck, who I, I love, who's on ESPN's pregame show, uh, talking about it last Sunday, how when you have one of those shoulder injuries, you're just a little bit off in your body and your timing and how you tuck that shoulder to throw. It can impact your accuracy, your thoughts about running. Uh, I thought Josh looked more Josh Allen last week than we had seen in the prior month. And I think when he is that, this is a terrific team. Um, it's not going to be the defense that was there last year as injuries and other things have piled on. It just, it, it doesn't feel like it can get to that level where it was last year, which I thought was a difference maker, but I feel like the offense can carry this team now and, and we'll have to, I, I think here down the stretch, there are some tests here, but, I mean, I'm excited. I'm really excited for the fans in Western New York. It, it, it's funny, maybe as much as any team, Murph, I feel bad when I see the wide shots of the stadium and I see the place empty. Because for the poor teams over the last decade or so, right, and the long run since the, the, the great run, um, the Bills fans were always there always believing, always supporting. It's one of the remarkable fan bases in all sports. And uh, this group deserves to have the opportunity to be there and watch a new young quarterback and the way he plays. And you know, The team's got a lot of the stuff the old team had, right? Yeah. How excited on offense. And I just, I just feel bad that the fans can't be in person to, to enjoy it. But I, I know they are. And I, I think this team is built to be right there with, Pittsburgh and Kansas City and the best teams in the AFC. Tennessee, I think, is back from their dip a little bit. Baltimore, of course. I, I think this team can play with any of those teams. Uh, I'm not going to say they're better than them right now, but I, I like their chances going into the last uh, third of the season here. Last thing I have for you, Mike, and it is Masters week. NBC yeah. doesn't have the Masters, but um, you do golf and you're the lead golf host. From a broadcast standpoint, it seems to me that might be among the most difficult things you do. No, I mean, when I think of the choreography that goes on, switching from player to player, from hole to hole, from analyst to analyst, uh, just got to be hard to keep all that together doing a, a big golf tournament, a major tournament. It, it, it is, John. Uh, I had the chance to work the U.S. Open, obviously, the last few years with NBC and the British Open for uh, a whole long run at uh, ABC and ESPN and was lucky enough as, there to be a part of the master's coverage in Butler cabin for uh, about eight years. And uh, so I've, I, I say that because I've had the chance to work with 
really every network's golf production team. CBS produces the Masters. We just appeared on there as ESPN covered it as hosts, uh, working with the NBC team now and when we shared the U.S. Open and obviously the ABC and ESPN team. So uh, I've had a chance to do uh, golf broadcasts with a lot of different folks, and I can say top to bottom, all networks, uh, those producers and directors are among the most talented in the business because, as you said, there's so much going on. Think about it. Football, it's 120 yards back of the end zone to back of the end zone and one ball, right? (laughs) Golf is played over acres with multiple balls in motion at the same time. And, you know, the scoring's happening every time somebody hits a shot. And this guy is, this guy is hitting his third shot. Did he hit a bad drive and have to chip out of the pine straw to Guster? You know? So sometimes you'll see a guy in the position where he should be hitting his second, but in fact, he's hitting his third. Or did he put one in the water? Is there a penalty and all the rules? And that's going on. So there's so many decisions you have to make uh, in a golf tournament that uh, the producers and directors and the folks who help guide and spot what's going on in the golf course, it's, it's as close to um, an orchestra with all the different pieces that have to be played just right at the right time uh, to sound good. It's as close to that as you get in our business. And uh, you know, CBS does such a good job over the years with the Masters. And the one cool part of the Masters on TV, John, and being there is you don't have to spend a lot of time telling people about the golf course. Go to a U.S. Open or the Open, the British Open, a lot of folks refer to it as, and people only see those golf courses on TV once every 10 years. So you have to explain the holes and do that. Augusta, you know, 10's a par four, you know, uh, 11's a par four, you know, 12's the famous par three over Ray's Creek, you know, 13's the par five that goes right to left. 14 is the par four with no bunkers. Right. And you just go on and on and on and you just see the holes and you know it. So you can really concentrate on the golf. I think that's why, plus the excitement of Eagles at 13 and 15, uh, make it as uh, as exciting a broadcast as any that uh, that is done in our industry. Mike, it is great catching up with you. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to do this. And, and I hope we get you up here December 13th for Sunday Night Football. I really do. Me too, Murph. I'm, uh, I'm excited to watch the Bills here as they go through and excited for all the Western New York fans. It's great to catch up with you. Keep up the great work. It's uh, always good to hear your voice. It's a uh, It's a friendly and happy voice that makes me think of the Bills and of Western New York and of football. So keep up the great work, pal. Thank you, Mike. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with John Murphy. Time to talk some beer and to talk some restaurant business this week. We are joined on the line by the CEO of Sullivan's Brewing Company, Michael Mead, and the founder of the Fox Lifestyle Hospitality Group, Mark Fox in New York City. Gentlemen, thanks very much for coming on with us today. Thanks Thanks for having us, John. Hey, uh, Mark, let me talk with you. Tell me about the Fox Lifestyle Hospitality Group. What's involved in that? You got, what, a half dozen, almost a half dozen restaurants in New York City? Yeah, I've got five places in, in Manhattan. Um, I founded it uh, about seven years ago. We've been growing at a steady pace over the last seven years. And, you know, we continue, have continued to look for emerging opportunities. Uh, I've been in the restaurant business and bar business all, all my life. Uh, I'm in New York City 25 years, got involved in my first restaurant in 2001. And um, prior to that, I worked in the industry in Dublin, I'm from Dublin originally. So, look, I eat, drink, and sleep hospitality. It's all I've ever done. Um, like, I'm a, a kid that came up uh, through a family that didn't have any great means, great family. But my entire success has been built off my hard work and the loyalty of the staff that uh, work for me. Uh, 
And what's what's happening now is tragic, you know, because there's hundreds and, and I guess thousands of people like me, particularly nationwide, that are seeing their, you know, their entrepreneurship dreams just kind of evaporate before their eyes. And the thousands of people that work for them are absolutely uh, becoming unemployed, but no chance of re-employment right now. Yep. I want to get into some of that with you, Mark, in a moment. But just in terms of your background, you grew up in Dublin. And this is a self-serving question for Michael Mead and myself. But how aware are you of the tradition of brewing in Kilkenny, Ireland, and, and of Sullivan's in, in particular? It's a, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic story uh, where, where Mike went in and resurrected uh, the oldest uh, brewery in the country and is uh, brewing some fantastic beers now. And we look forward to see Sullivan's grow internationally. It's already a success in Ireland. It's already a success here in New York City, and it's grown exponentially. And uh, Mike is just a tremendous individual, a smart guy. And uh, I look forward to seeing what the Sullivan's Brewing Company does in the future, you know. Michael, Mark, you've been nice in, you. yeah. <laughs> Mike, Michael, so, you've been in one of Mark's places, the Rag Trader, where I guess they're pouring Sullivan's these days, right? They are, mm -hmm. and um, you know that's thanks to Mark and I having come together on this uh, restaurant group uh, kind of action committee to try to really save not just New York City's restaurants, but to try to work to to push our uh, government officials on the Restaurant Act and, and get it down to the people um, and and get the stimulus package done. The Rag Trader is really one of the more beautiful places in Manhattan. Mark, I would just almost call it a, a gastropub on steroids. It's so beautiful inside. Um, and then the food is over the, you know, if you have a, a hamburger, it'll be the best cheeseburger you ever had in your life. You know, it's, it's really, really an eclectic menu. Um, just last night, about 10 guys from J.P. Morgan were in there. You know, all of your concepts are really unique and special. I mean, they're not just, um, they're, they're concepts more than just pubs or restaurants, aren't they? They're not an Irish pub in terms of, you know, the stereotype. No, they're, 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 the bistro-style menus, uh, certainly uh, scratch kitchen dining, which means we, we source everything locally, everything is freshly prepared in-house. You know, we, we like to offer uh, raw bar selections. We have a Pavese pizza oven. Uh, which is a fantastic oven. They're sold exclusively by an Italian company called Forzo Fiorni because they have a, a single plate brick base on them, which gives this 800 degree even heat. You can cook a beautiful thin crust pizza in about six minutes on these things. And we like to do, uh, we like to create, uh, you know, endearing concepts. I think it's a, a nice way to put it where people feel a sense of belonging and there's a little bit of fun involved and some flair brought into the concept and the brand ideal, you know. And it's it's kind of how I like to, um, you know, think of think of these concepts and bring them to life. I don't like to, to open conventional places, you know, as if it's not dire enough in Manhattan right now where I'm sitting. You know, I'm here 60 percent of my time. How about, you know, you can only have outdoor dining until really just a couple of weeks ago in New York City. And then they decide to the, the, the city decides to rip out the sidewalk in front of one of Mark's places. Oh. You know, like you can't make up what's going on in Manhattan. And, um, you know, what, what I find interesting is I look at the plight of, of, of Mark and his uh, kind of um, equals out there is that 
you know, this outdoor dining thing has taken on new life in Manhattan. So not only is it sidewalk dining, now it's parking space in the most urban of settings in the country, parking space, outdoor dining, which has become quasi indoor dining as now the colder weather is coming, certainly not this week, but in general. And so we're trying to prevent a virus. Our poor restaurant and bar owners are now having to enclose these things. And so what's the difference while only allowing 25% inside, you know? It's really rough. Yeah. How, how rough is it, Mark? Can you tell us what it's been like to deal with the restrictions? What are you, 25% capacity now, right? Yeah. Look, like at the end of the day, you know, we'll talk about capacity in a moment, but really it all boils down to revenue, right? And the bottom line is this. Like if you were to take Rag Trader, for instance, that was a $3.8 million build-out, a raw build-out from an office space in 2016, right? Uh, in 2019, it did uh, $8 million. And this year... It won't do two million, and Q1 was up on Q1 last year, right? So it's just absolutely impossible to stay open. It's as simple as that. And the from the government has been astounding, um, and it's been uh, constant from the very beginning uh, of the, of this, where they have a particular concern with New York City, and why we recognise. The, 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 that safety and the well-being of our, our consumer, our, our staff and our families have to come first. It has to be balanced with the uh, economic stability of the city and also independent businesses that, like me, invested in good faith $3.8 million on a premise that I would be able to trade. And the PPP program, which was a fantastic program when it was introduced, was uh, created to solve an eight or 10 week problem. And now here we are nine months later. Uh, PPP funds have been exhausted uh, way back early September. And when my bank account runs dry, that's it, I'm out. There's no other way for me to find funding. And this stimulus bill should have been passed in September. It's an absolute disgrace. It's nothing short of a disgrace that here we are post-election uh, still looking for the stimulus. Because I'll tell you, John, uh, I'm very, very close to the brink. Uh, Christmas, I probably won't make it to Christmas. And there are hundreds of businesses that are gone already, and nobody's reading about it. They're gone. Thousands of people have been laid off already, and nobody's reading about it. There's no enhanced unemployment benefits for these people. And these people are going to be on the poverty, poverty line going into the holiday season this year. And it's a disgrace. It's a disgrace. Nothing short of it, John. John, uh, to, to elaborate on that, John, you know, I, my apartment is right near City Hall in Manhattan, and there's a street called Beekman Street. Yep. And seven of eight um, businesses on Beekman Street have closed, ranging from a barber shop to a couple of Italian restaurants to uh, an Austrian restaurant. And it's in a neat part of town, and they were all unique establishments, closed permanently. And, you know, so where you see this going is terrible. And by the way, when Mark's quoting numbers like that, um, those would be astounding numbers. Because don't forget the Restaurant Act is meant to really help restaurants nationwide and in all of our markets where we're trading, uh, where we're selling Sullivan's, right? And the difference yep. in some of the markets where we're selling Sullivan's is that they've been open at 50% or even 100% in Georgia for a long time. And, and so when you hear numbers like that coming out of New York City, both the closure rate and then the top line revenue numbers and so forth and the cost of doing business. I mean, Mark, I don't know. What do you think the average rent is in Manhattan for a restaurateur? 
you know, like if you're talking about a midtown area, you're talking anywhere from 110 to 500 bucks a square foot, depending on where you are, right? And you just, the footfall is down 75%. Uh, the restrictions have cost us thousands of dollars, as you said, Michael, and the lack of guidance is just literally putting people out of business. Yeah. Uh, we were supposed to get 50%. Uh, they said that they would, to go back on it, actually, to be clear, John, uh, we were supposed to get 50% on July 7th. On July 2nd, they postponed it indefinitely. Only for New York City. Every other municipality in New York State got 50% in the summer. So they traded throughout the summer with indoor dining, full outdoor areas, and had PPP funds to build up cash reserves. New York City, which is the, 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 the highest per square foot rate in the state, and probably in the, in the top five per square foot rate in the country, but no indoor dining till September 30th, after the PPP funds had run out. And then they gave us 25%. And just to, to circle back for a moment on what I mentioned about revenue numbers before, any fool could figure out that you cannot write a pro forma for a 75% decrease in revenue and survive in a business. It's not possible. It's not survivable. But then when they introduced uh, the 25% guidance, they said we would re-examine 50% uh, for a possible November 1st. Not one more word has been mentioned about it. And it's the silence that's deafening. And there's people losing their businesses daily and not a word has been said. Yeah, Michael's right. The weather's actually turned pretty nice this weekend. But last week it rained torrentially for four days. And we had no business. 5% indoors. We can't sustain ourselves. So uh, Governor Cuomo needs to step up to the plate and start paying attention to the economic devastation that's occurring in New York City. And, uh, you know, I, I believe he's adopted a policy whereby he can blame the economic collapse in New York City on the mayor and walk away from it. And I'm here to say today that uh, we won't let him forget that we hold him responsible because at the end of the day, he's a state governor. Mark, uh, tell me about the Restaurant Act and how much of a solution that might be for, for some of your issues anyway. Look, at the end of the day, getting back to the very beginning here, we recognize there's a pandemic in play here and the safety of everybody has to come first. That's our civic responsibility. Now, uh, the Restaurants Act is a grant-based program, $124 billion that has bipartisan approval in both houses. And it's got caught up and wrapped up with the, the, the stimulus bill that's been kicked over and back like a tennis ball for the last three months. Um, it caps out, I believe, at um, franchises above 15 locations or something like that are, are, are not allowed. Um, the first two weeks of the program are, is reserved for people with revenues under 1.5 million. So it's really taking care of the mom and pop and the independent operator. And it'll take care of the restaurant operators in New York City with grant-based liquidity, which all it is, Rook, it's just bridging the liquidity to get us through to the other side, to keep our staff employed, keep the landlord paid, keep the commercial real estate market intact, and get us back to when we can trade without restrictions and consumer confidence is, resorbed, uh, is, is restored. It's logical. Uh, Mark, to wrap things up, I was reading about the Restaurants Act and a couple of other items, and it struck me about restaurants in particular, and you know this, this is your life, Michael, you know this as well, but certainly restaurants are recognized as a, uh, a, a community uh, asset, a community center, but I, I didn't realize, I guess I knew it, but I didn't realize about, the, restaurants have maybe the most diverse 
workforce of any industry in the country, women, uh, immigrants, minorities. Uh, another couple of reasons why we have to save restaurants all over the country, not just New York City, correct? 100%. And also, the, the, the diversity, absolutely. Secondly, the majority of people that work in New York City restaurants, or work in restaurants nationwide, are paycheck workers. These are not people with big cash reserves. They rely on the paycheck to pay their rent and feed their families. These are not like restaurants are not blue chip companies. <clears throat> These people come in and earn a living week to week, and a lot of them are going on to pursue other careers. And that's what the restaurant industry has always been. It's been a gateway industry, and it's on the verge of collapse, John. And John, you know, you know, the thing, the thing that has to be pointed out here, again, in terms of the cost and the effect of, you know, what's going on uh, on the owners, of course, trickles down to the workers and, and so forth. But these restaurants and bars in our entire seven state footprint at Sullivan's, systematically, you can go into any of them in any of the states from O'Connell's Pub in Georgia to the Blackthorn in Buffalo and in between. And they've taken every precaution out of their pocket, they've done the spend on the sanitary requirements, um, whether that's plexiglass, masks, thermometers, depending on you know what the requirement is and where, uh, the winking lizards in Cleveland, I know you talked to John Lane. And so the restaurant industry has stood up to do the right thing to try to protect their clientele and, uh, and are feeling pretty deserted. And the more people that kind of know about the plight is if it's not obvious enough, the better. Yeah. Okay, well, I hope we get the word out there. Uh, Mark Fox, the founder of Fox Lifestyle Hospitality Group, thank you very much. Michael Mead, CEO of Sullivan's Brewing Company, thank you very much as well. Thank you both, fellas. John, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time. Well, that's going to do it for this week's installment of Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. Our thanks to Mark Fox and Michael Mead for hanging out with us, doing the uh, last segment about uh, Mark Fox's Fox Lifestyle uh, Group in New York City, the the tough spot they're in with restaurants. And and it really, I don't know, it, it kind of brought home when he talked about the challenges they're up against. It kind of brought home how serious this shutdown is and the quarantine due to COVID. We wish him well. We thank him for coming on the show today. Of course, I want to thank Mike Tirico, good buddy of mine, and thank him. And hopefully we get to see him December 13th when the Bills are home against the Pittsburgh Steelers for Sunday Night Football. We should learn that in the next couple of weeks or so. But Tirico is great, uh, ridiculously talented, uh, does a variety of different things, and he even took out 15, 20 minutes to spend with us on the podcast today. We thank him for that. Uh, I want to let you know that this Thursday night, I mentioned it earlier, Thursday night we're going to be in the central New York area. We're going to Killebrew Saloon, 10 Clinton Road in New Hartford. We're going to talk about Sullivan's Beer. We're going to talk about the Buffalo Bills and their 7-2 record. We'll talk about the NFL. You've got the Colts and the Titans on Thursday Night Football that night. We'll be at Killebrew Saloon, 7 to 9 p.m. Hope to see you there. Matt Tomano, who is a Sullivan's rep in that area, will uh, will be hosting. And we look forward to meeting all the folks in uh, New Hartford and Utica, New York, this Thursday night. Hope you can come out there. Killebrew Saloon, Thursday night, 7 o'clock. Uh, and, of course, they do pour Sullivan's there. Sullivan's Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Gold Ale, and Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. And we look forward to seeing all kinds of Sullivan's fans and Buffalo Bills fans at Killaroo Saloon this Thursday night. I want to thank our uh, producer, Pat Feldbaugh. We'll be back next week for another installment of Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. You've been listening to John Murphy and Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's all about the Bills and the Beers.